Playback on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by Panadol. Panadol made in Ireland. Contains paracetamol. Always read the label. Good morning. The climate emergency, rising energy costs, inflation and the war in Ukraine. If you are looking for a crisis, we've got them in spades. But before you dive back under the covers, you know what just might be in the rearview mirror? This devil. We've never been in a better position to end the pandemic, the WHO Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus said at a briefing yesterday. We're not there yet, he said, but the end is in sight. Well, let's just take a moment to praise that one. The COVID hopefully togging out for the playback lead for the last time. All fingers crossed, never say never, caveats, variants, etc. But given its dominance in all of our lives, that is pretty good news. News we may need because, frankly, we have enough to be dealing with. On late debate, with public buildings resetting the thermostat to save a bit of money, Katie put this question to Sunday Business Post Paul Corr, Daniel Murray. Who decided that 19 was the perfect temperature? And was it a boy? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it likely was. I, I was looking into this before coming on air and while I couldn't get to the bottom of exactly where the figure had originally come from, it's something that has been recommended for many years. The World Health Organization recommends that the kind of healthy temperature for households in and around 18 degrees. If you are, I think they describe it, a healthy, well-dressed person. I think they mean well-dressed as in wearing enough clothes as opposed to stylishly dressed. Um, and then some, some member states uh, at the moment are recommending even lower than that, 17 degrees in Italy. Germany is recommending around 19 degrees for for public buildings. So it seems to me that it's meant to hit this sweet spot between kind of comfort and health uh, and what is energy efficient. Um, but of course, uh, a lot of, like a lot of things and a lot of policies, it may have been made uh, just with thinking about kind of male uh, subjects in mind and, and quite possibly that's where it originated from. But pulling her woolly socks right up to her shins, Marion Harkin, independent TD for Sligo Leitrim. Believe um, it or not, before I came out here, I went into the canteen and I said if they're going to drop the temperature to 19 degrees, I'd be taking my papers and I'd be coming down to the canteen to do my work because 19 degrees is cool. I'm over in Ag House and they often turn off the heating earlier because there's only a few politicians. And Nobody cares anyway if we freeze um, over there. Where is that violin? Where is that violin? Look, we have to, yes, we have to play our part and it's no good to be flippant about it. But 19 degrees is cool. If you're sitting working at 8, 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night, I can tell you. And back in with the science, our Katie. We can quote studies uh, uh, from uh, of over 500 German college students, placing them in a room and taking tests at different temperatures ranging from 16 degrees to 32 degrees. Uh, The researchers found a difference in the performance between men and women depending on the temperature. Uh, Previous studies showed women preferred rooms at 25 degrees centigrade, while men are more comfortable at 21 degrees. Women are cooler than men at the same temperature because of their physiology. Uh, so uh, it is a gender issue. Is this the patriarchy t- trying to take over the world again, <laughs> Katie? You wouldn't put it past them. But on the Claire Byrne Show, a reminder that we have been here before and got through it. The 1973 Arab-Israeli crisis resulting in an oil embargo to the US with knock-on effects at home. Here is Professor of Modern Irish History in UCD, Jermoth Ferreter. There was a quadrupling. Mm -hmm. of the uh, price of oil 
Now, we've got to consider the huge dependency on oil That's the in the thing, 1970s. It's a di- different time. It's a completely different time. Com- almost and complete reliance. Yeah, and for us, we were reliant on oil for 75% of our energy needs. And there was a very high dependence in Europe generally, and we were even above that average. I mean, the averages were between 50 and 70%, and we were 75%. So it, the effects were immediate. And people of a certain generation, of course, will remember different aspects of that, including, of course, the queues to get petrol and and the rationing of petrol and energy. And an awful lot of the messages that we heard this morning, even from the Taoiseach, you know, they are very much in keeping with the messages from the 1970s. The context has changed and we talk about gas now. But Richie Ryan, who was the Minister for Finance at the end of 1973... I mean, he made a speech to the Shannon in December 1973 and he said, our entire future is threatened by a combination of the oil crisis, rampant inflation and a hike in interest rates. And there was a national pay agreement in 1974 where there were proposed wage increases of up to 29% to try and keep on top of inflation because inflation was hovering between 15 and over 20% during those years. Mm. So they really are uh, strikingly high figures. Gosh, it's almost a complete replication of what we have It is. And And then, as now, the emphasis on finding alternative sources of energy. President Richard Nixon is adamant that they have to urgently look at alternative solutions. And it's titled Project Independence. We have to become self-sufficient when it comes to our energy needs and our fuel needs. Fracking in Alaska. There's also dealing with the consequences of an energy sapping lifestyle, which has been a part of, of the previous few decades, particularly when oil is so cheap and what they were spending it on, you know, when it came to things like uh, air conditioning and obviously the, the fuel guzzlers that we mentioned. So it is a political priority. And again, in the late 1970s, you know, there are a few stunts. Uh, later, President Jimmy Carter dons a sweater, you know, to emphasise that you can make small, simple changes uh, yourself. Jeremy Ferreter with Claire. Meanwhile, the doll is back after the summer recess and an ever so slightly discombobulated Kian Corla. Drive Times Fergal Keane brought us this. At least one person is, as he put it himself, a bit out of practice and light relief is hard to come in politics at the moment. But when the Kian Corla shown of Farrell called for leaders' questions, he seemed to point, he said Taoiseach, and seemed to point at Mary Lou MacDonald. Something that everybody thought was a bit premature to say the very least, but she appreciated what she said was this vote of confidence. Taoiseach, please. Leaders' questions. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you got it right. You got it right. <laughs> I'm And staying with somewhat unedited moments, writer John Boyne came in to talk to Ryan about his new book, All the Broken Places, a sequel of sorts to The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas. But before they got into the book chat, this. Well, how svelte you're looking, how well Thank you're you. looking. Thank uh, you. Uh, things I probably shouldn't and am not allowed to say, but I'll say it anyway. Uh, to what do we owe this uh, kind of recalibrated John Boyne? Um, actually, I owe it to Unpust. Oh, what? Yes. Go on. Um, about four months ago, a package got delivered to my house, which wasn't for me. And I wandered down the road to deliver it to its correct recipient. And the person who opened the door was talking to me. And she said, do you know, every time I see you, she said, you get bigger. 
And I, <laughs> I know. And I went home and I took out all the biscuits and cakes and sweets and crisps in the house. And you know what I did? Go on. I, I ate them all. Did you? I ate them all and I said, this is the last of this I'm ever going to eat. And that was four months ago. And since then, I've had no processed foods, no sugars, nothing like that. I've walked 20,000 steps a day and I've gone from 89.6 kilos to this morning where I was 78.2. That's, that's amazing. You 11 can see bags it. of sugar. Okay, even better. So, but, that, but I can see it in you. That That is great. Uh, but, uh, uh, there's so many places I want to go. <laughs> <clears throat> Excuse me. First of all, the, 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 the lady who... <laughs> she's a very nice lady. A very nice lady. <laughs> she's, she's one of those great unfiltered people yeah, that we know. Yeah. She didn't mean any harm, but it was just like, you big fat you know, <laughs> guy. <That's> a, <laughs> yeah, if you were to give what was really in her head. So yeah. yeah. So, and I just thought, right. And and actually, you know, I'd wanted to lose weight for a long time. Um even like I looked at myself on that when I was on the Late Late Show with you last autumn mm. and I thought, oh, you know. Did like, you? Yeah. And I just thought I, I need to lose weight. And it was it was the moment where I thought, right, that's it. Yeah. Amazing, isn't it? What, what triggered that, though? Just yeah. one comment. But it's great. It's great for my mental health, for my um, just feeling confident and feeling happy in life. Um, it's been it's it's changed me completely. And I had to buy a whole new wardrobe. What have people been saying when they see you in this new state? They say, who is this handsome man? Who is this? And how do I get his number? (laughs) And with Ray, comedian Alison Spittle, a woman who is no stranger to the unfiltered comment, fielding heckles for a living she is. And she's just back from the Edinburgh Festival, where she got some really, really good reviews. But she's earned them. Edinburgh is like a boot camp for comedians. The first ever Edinburgh I did, I had a documentary crew following me from TV3 and the documentary crew, the documentary ended with me crying, saying I haven't validated myself as a comedian. It was all just footage of me flyering in the rain. I never did a gig to more than four people right. the whole month. Really? Yeah. Yeah, because I was very new. I didn't see that documentary. Uh, look, not a lot of people did. And, <laughs> I'm very, and I, I mean, it was a good documentary, but I wasn't at my best, you know. Um, how so, do you how do you pick yourself up from that? You know, you're, you've done all you can, mm, and you arrive on stage, and there's four people in front of you. It's very, do you know do you know what the weird thing was when I came back to Ireland after doing that? Uh, because because I did a gig, I did a gig to a man who had soiled himself and had to leave the venue, right? And then genuinely, that was that was the thing that happened at four o'clock during the day. You so one then, person? Well, yeah, one, but yeah, oh. not, not multiple people. I'm not that no. funny now, Ray, you know? <laughs> but we had to stop the gig and uh, get some air freshener and take away the chair. Right. And when I did that gig, uh, a, a hen or a stag party in Dublin will never phase me. It makes you, oh, you yes. know, you get the thousand yard stare. And you, there's often times where you come up against some stuff where you might be like, oh, they're very loud and raucous today, yes. like the audience. But then you're like, remember Edinburgh, Alison. <laughs> remember doing a gig to two people who were sat as far away from each other as possible, right. where you stopped the gig because one person wasn't laughing. And I said, are you okay? Like, you can leave. And she says, I do not speak English. And I was <laughs> And I was like, thank God, you do it. Like, I was, I thought she hated me, but she just couldn't understand a word I was saying. <laughs> oh, that is brilliant. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Over 200 days into the war and the start of the week brought cautious optimism as the Ukrainian military regained key territory. But then, later in the week, reprisals from the Russian forces. On Thursday's Morning Ireland, Anya spoke to Ukrainian MP Lesia Vasilenko. 
I know there's been great celebration in Ukraine at the military success of recent days, uh, but the Russian reprisals against the civilians, the de- strike on that dam overnight, um, it, it must be bittersweet. Uh, it's not yet great celebrations. Uh, we can afford to smile a little bit more than uh, than we used to over these last 200 days. That is true. But we understand that uh, there's still some fighting to do before we can uh, really declare victory and really come out on the streets with celebration. And wherever there is fighting, there are going to be losses and there are going to be casualties. And we are well aware of that uh, and very grateful to the men and women who are sacrificing themselves for the greater good of of all of the 44 million nation of Ukrainians who are waiting and praying and standing strong in unity. Mm-hmm. And in truth, you, are, you were just retelling um, what's going on in the East. And I can add to that, that every city, every town, village that gets liberated, apart from people who are extremely grateful and embracing the Ukrainian military, we are also uncovering hundreds of small butchers of a smaller scale. That is to say that we are seeing evidence of Russia's war crimes, crimes against humanity that they have been committing throughout Ukraine in every single community without exception. And yesterday, grim reports of a mass burial site of 450 bodies in the city of Izium, which had been recaptured. On Drive Time, Sarah spoke to Mark Krutov, a Russian investigative journalist with Radio Free Europe, who has been analysing the site, which was an existing cemetery. This is a well-known uh, cemetery, and it has some somewhat 400 uh, new burials of uh, uh, local civilians, as well as uh, several burials of Ukrainian military servicemen, uh, which are uh, unknown at this at this moment, and indeed there are some some bodies with the hand with the hands tied. But uh, I should say that the vast majority of um, of tombs uh, at this cemetery are civilians who were probably uh, starved to death or died after the shelling or air strikes. For me personally, it looks a little bit more like Mariupol than like Bucha, where we did saw these bodies on the street and we know a lot of facts where people were just for being pro-Ukrainian. So mm-hmm. in this case, we need to focus on these um, military Ukrainians who were buried there. And uh, I should say that also pro-Russian channels back in May 2022, they also reported about this cemetery and they said that uh, indeed Ukrainian, some Ukrainian dead soldiers are buried there, but they said that they're buried there because Ukrainian military refused to take their bodies back after their combat fighting. And today we see that this is a blunt lie because uh, when you uncover the body with their hands uh, tied uh, behind their backs. It's definitely not the case. So they probably are just prisoners of war which were being shot and uh, this is a, a war crime. But uh, again, on the other hand, I think the most people which are buried there died because of the starving, shelling, airstrikes, etc. Also, I should uh, remind uh, your listeners that Izium was under Ukrainian control before April 1st. And we see it on the on the videos, we see the book which they kept with the names of the victims, 
which were buried there, and some victims uh, were buried there before that date. So, okay. unfortunately, that means that uh, these shellings, maybe not only Russian shellings, so this city was under cross shelling all the way, all the way long. So, so a lot to to yet verify and a lot to uncover. From drive time yesterday. This week also saw Ursula von der Leyen travelling to Kiev to meet Vladimir Zelensky to reiterate the EU's unwavering support and also saying she wants Russian President Vladimir Putin to face the International Criminal Court over war crimes in Ukraine. On Thursday, Putin met with Xi Jinping and acknowledged the Chinese leader had concerns about the war. On yesterday's News at One, Gavin spoke to Keith Bradshaw, Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. There is definitely a new caution by China's leader, Xi Jinping, towards Russia's leader, Putin, uh, that we didn't see the last time the two men met in person. They've emphasized, both of them have emphasized friendship, but Xi Jinping was clearly reluctant this time to make any new promises of assistance at all. In fact, even a natural gas pipeline that Russia desperately wants and has been promoting as an alternative to selling natural gas to Europe did not get approved during this meeting. You had Russian officials, including Putin, before the meeting and again after the meeting uh, saying that, oh, this is about to happen. But China did not buy the gas. China did not express any uh, support at all uh, for Russia's actions in Ukraine. China did not really criticize NATO as strongly as some people had been expecting. Now, that said, China did say that it shares Russia's concerns about foreign interests causing turbulence. It was a clear reference to the United States. Uh, but this was a meeting that emphasized more strongly t- uh, China's concerns, particularly Taiwan's, particularly the Taiwan, Ta- Taiwan Strait and less Russia's concerns. It wasn't clear that Russia got anything at all out of the meeting. So might President Vladimir Putin be feeling the pressure. Certainly, this week brought significant military setbacks to the Kremlin war plan. Might that also translate into political unrest? On Tuesday, Claire was joined by former British ambassador to Belarus, John Everard. How much of a disaster is this politically for Vladimir Putin? We don't yet know. Uh, He might sail through this, but it is looking pretty bad. Uh, The the mood in Moscow at the moment is one of carefully engineered calm. Uh, Just a couple of days ago, we saw Vladimir Putin beaming as he inaugurated the biggest Ferris wheel in Europe. So he was trying to signal business as as usual. But of course, uh, the the Russian blogosphere is is buzzing with accusations of incompetence, corruption, treason. And uh, as we were hearing just now, uh, there's real dissent amongst Russian generals. So the ground is starting to wobble under Vladimir Putin. Wobble may be, but it would need quite the shift to finally topple him. So where to now? What do you think his next move will be? I think, well, firstly, Vladimir Putin does not do U-turns. Temperamentally, he hates them. And politically, they're very dangerous in in Russian politics. I suspect he will try to double down. I suspect we'll see more ineffective micromanagement by the Kremlin in operations on the ground. He'll try to push more troops in. But he's running out of troops. He's very low on equipment. And the other big news that only just breaking is that it's not just on the battlefield that Putin has a huge headache, but last month, for the first time this year, Russia ran a huge uh, 
budget deficit in his government. In fact, the deficit last month uh, wiped out most of the accumulated deficit, uh, accumulated surplus rather, uh, that Russia has had from high gas prices over the year. He's running out of troops, he's running out of equipment, and now we know he's running out of money. And you just wonder how all of this will play with the Russian public, but particularly as they see those images of Russian tanks and hardware being left behind as the, as the troops withdrew. Yes, this is a question that I'm sure that everybody in the Kremlin is asking themselves too. Uh, how do we possibly explain this to our public? This is clearly a major humiliation for Russia, uh, a huge reverse in Putin's imperial ambitions. And at what point does seething anger turn into actual insurrection? Uh, are we in danger? I don't know the answer to that. I'm not sure Putin does either. Do you think that it's coming to the end of his time as president? How often have we said that? Putin has a remarkable survival rate. Um, I, I, I think a lot of people would love to see the back of him, but I, if I were you, I keep that champagne on ice for the time being. Former ambassador to Belarus, John Everard with Claire. And a view echoed by Secretary-General of the NATO Military Alliance, Jens Stoltenberg. It is extremely encouraging to see that uh, Ukrainian armed forces have been able to take back territory and uh, and uh, and also strike behind Russian uh, lines. At the same time, uh, we need to understand that this is uh, not uh, uh, the beginning of the end of the war. We need to be prepared for the long haul. A sobering reminder that this war is far from over. On Thursday, the Clare Burn show came from Dundalk and making ends meet was top of the agenda. And among the people Clare spoke to was Eileen Hart, principal of CBS National School. Their school now has DESH status and with that, a programme for free meals for the pupils. How's it working out? Do they like it? Oh, it's fantastic. The kids are so excited about the whole, you know, the whole experience of having food together. And I think we've sort of focused on that is the whole social element of it because um, children missed out on so much during COVID that um, this has allowed them to come together and just to have chats and to really have that social experience of eating together. And while many parents are feeling the pinch, they're also willing to do whatever it takes to make sure their children can fully participate in school. And tell me, would you have noticed before this that some children would come in, maybe wouldn't have had their breakfast, didn't have their lunch? Was that happening or was it more hidden than that? You see, yes, and that is the really important message. Sometimes people are living in disadvantage and not being able to pay their bills and they come to school in their full uniform. They have what they need because their parents are in the background struggling. And I come from a disadvantaged background myself, so my mum would have been on her own. And one thing, we always went to school in full uniform. We had our lunch, and yet she couldn't pay the electric bill. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you'd come home, and I knew that my mum was going without her dinner to make sure that we were fed. So it was hidden, and I think that is something that we have to get out there to people to understand that people, our parents are working, they're trying to do the best for their children, but... You know, they could be living in poverty and nobody actually knows. And I think part of this whole school meals programme is fantastic because it's inclusive. Every single child gets a meal. They'll get a hot meal. So one thing for sure is that when the child goes home, their parents can rest assured that their child is fed. And nobody knows what they have and what they haven't got. People are self-conscious. People that are coming from difficulty and economic difficulty are proud people. And it's very difficult to ask for help. 
and I suppose trying to get that message across to say there are people out there that will help if you are struggling come forward and, and it's you know we will help. And Eileen's own experience of the education system gives her first-hand knowledge of the kinds of challenges so many families face. Eileen how did you do it? How did you get to where you are from where you were? Um, I, I suppose we're talking yesterday it was probably determination. Um, I was an early school leaver. I left school at 15 and um, I was, I went to school in Jobstown, I actually went to school, secondary school in Brookfield and in Talla and um, it was tough, it was hard and you're living day to day so it's, it's different, it's trying to explain that to people that you know you can't look at doing your leaving search, you can't look at going to toward level because you are worried about how you know how your mother's going to pay the bills, how, how we're going to get through life day to day. So. Um, I did leave school and I had to work and I had to earn money to help and um, eventually when I got the chance to do the leaving cert as an, I was older and got VTOS and um, so you know education changed my life and I am so conscious of that and being principal of the school now I want to bring that message to everybody that you know you can do it and education changes lives. Dundalk Principal Eileen Hart. Over on the very last second captains for this season, world-renowned composer and vocalist Jennifer Walsh. And it was a crack of a listen, also involving more good teaching, because Jennifer is the Professor of Composition at Oxford, no less. And her approach to music education is open. School of Rock open even. I, I, how can I put it this way? I think any teacher, if they're teaching music, should be able to meet the kids on their own level. So if a kid comes in and says, I have a death metal band, you know, the teacher should say, OK, great. I don't know anything about death metal. Tell me five albums to listen to, you know, mm. and like, let's try and figure this out. And the same thing if a kid comes in and says, I really love playing the cello and I want to, you know, learn my Bach cello suite. So it there should be that openness. But unfortunately, often institutions aren't funded or the way people are educated, they don't feel confident doing that. Or how do you create a curriculum that allows the kid who's interested in death metal to be to be assessed alongside the kid that's interested in playing a trad or something like that? So, I mean, I'm lucky in that I sort of I teach at university level. So that's what I do all day is I, I'm just what are you interested in? That's weird that I get to learn about now because you're interested in it. That's that's just sort of who I am. That's Jennifer now. But how had she fared when she was on the other side of the desk? I'm pig-headed and stubborn, like, and so I'm a little Joe Pesci in Goodfellas <laughs> inside me. And so I was lucky enough to just pig-head my way through it. And that's not to say it was easy. There were times it was really difficult. And I felt, you know, there were times people made fun of what I did. There was times people slated it. Um, and I just somehow kept going. And not everybody does. I know people who are incredibly fine musicians and artists who somehow it's just beaten them down and they haven't been able to keep going. Now, the interview with the lads was wide ranging and well worth the listen back if you didn't hear it. But was her musical prowess enough to gain her vital sporting points for that was what it was all about. It's time to start building up some points here, Jennifer. Okay. Is exercise a part of your regimen? Is, <laughs> is it important to your work? Well, I so I love trying loads of different physical disciplines out, trying Pilates or yoga or Tai Chi. And, uh, you know, I, I also love as I, you know, before the lockdowns in London, I used to take 
uh, dance classes at pineapple dance studios and I would just be the worst person in the room at hip hop or jazz dance <laughs> or whacking and and all these different dance disciplines and I just really love it because it's a way of being in your body you know that you don't get taught in school because in school it's more about who can run really fast okay great you're good at sports whereas you know if you don't allow people to just be in their body and get some pleasure from that you know most of us feel pretty bad about our bodies or we're worried about our bodies and it's really a shame if sports only means you're a person who can run really fast or hit a ball really precisely and so you don't get access to that nice feeling of being in your body and how did you figure that out during lockdown when you were kind of denied the chance to go to all these classes? Well, I did the running that everybody else did, but I hate running. It's it's just boring and wretched and it hurts my feet. Uh, so I just went really, really hard on YouTube deep dives of the worst workout videos I could find. <laughs> so I did the share hot body dance workout. Yep. I did jazzercise. <laughs> I did lots Jane of Fonda. Joe Wicks. Jane Fonda, yep, at the New York City Ballet Workout DVD. Um, I just did, because I just thought this will just be kitchen hilarious and it'll keep me going. If if I do one good thing in my life, it will be to introduce the world, more more people to the Ange- Angela Lansbury workout video, which I, <laughs> I, I don't know if I should say more, if you should just stop listening to the podcast <laughs> and just go Google Angela Lansbury workout video. Listen, I'm as big a fan of Murder, She Wrote as the next person, but I, mm. I just don't think encouraging yeah, yeah. people to stop listening listening to a radio show is going to get you big <laughs> points is all I'm saying and it didn't but you did make the top five top five finish more than I could have ever dreamed of <laughs> Jennifer Walsh thank you so much thanks very much fantastic and by the way the winner of this season's greatest non-sports person sports person hard to say Kit Deval back in a bit welcome back Prizes. If you know what creature links Mike Tyson, Queen Elizabeth II and Leonardo da Vinci. Oh, and Dublin man, John O'Brien. People seen them as flying rats and I just seen them as pigeons. They were beautiful. Yep, pigeons. Making him and them pigeon fanciers. And O'Brien's rather cosmic connection with the bird begins on the Hill of Tara. I use psychedelics and I had an experience with uh, pigeons and... That okay. also gave me a big push. So, so, so and, and Leonardo da Vinci was involved? Yeah, um, I didn't know anything about Leonardo da Vinci um, until that experience out on the Hill of Tara. And there was pigeons flying around and it's very vague in my head at the moment, like, you know, but uh, it was... Uh, it was what gave me a big push to, to keep pigeons. You'd have to you'd have to explain more to us, John. I'm fascinated. Leonardo da Vinci was a, was a pigeon Leonardo da Vinci well. kept pigeons. Oh, well, did he? You know, right. Yeah, so yeah. He was, he was fascinated with flying. Right. And the queen. Um, and the queen. The queen yes. kept them as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, Leonardo da Vinci kept pigeons, and he because he was fascinated by flying. All right. Um. So he wanted to figure out how to fly. Um. Uh, and did he come to you in this psychedelic trip? Yeah. And what? And, and the Ventorian man. As the Ventorian man, he came. Right. And. Did he say you must fancy pigeons? Or no. no? Um, it's so hard to explain because I didn't hear anything. Right. I just felt everything. You felt, but okay. When I came back, I wanted pigeons and I was keeping pigeons. Right. Mm. So that was transformative then? That, it was that transformative that day, yeah, yeah. Right. Was, I don't really like bringing it up too much because people have a, have a, an issue with hallucinogens. Because and, and, um, they're illegal. Yeah, because they're illegal. Yeah. But um, yeah, that's, that's right. it. 
Now, John is in a new documentary called Million Dollar Pigeons, directed by Gavin Fitzgerald. And they came in to talk to Ray because racing pigeons can involve some serious money. When I started the documentary, the most expensive pigeon in the world was, was 300 grand. And by the time I finished it, it was up to, to nearly nearly $2 million. Okay. So uh, you can see the, the influx of money into this industry. You were part of Clondalk and Pigeon Club. Yeah. And as, as Gavin described, it was mainly older men. You were one of the youngest there, one were you? One of the youngest. Uh, there was two or three other members that were around my age, but yeah. most of uh, 50-odd members, most of them were over 60. And you wouldn't be paying anywhere close to... Two million for a pigeon. Not a hope. No. Either with any of the fanciers no. in the club. So what? 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 What are you talking about for them? So, no pigeon is worth two point seven eight million, or one point five million, or three hundred thousand. Right. It's ridiculous. Carry on, and it's the Chinese businessmen that are doing it. It was ego that brought the price up that high. Right. It was two businessmen with loads of money wasting their money on pigeons. So it's going to break two two million soon enough, isn't it? The trend is worrying. All right. Yes. That is certainly some money. But for John, it all comes back to the gentle, curious and very loving nature of the pigeon. It's great when the, when you have them eating out of your hand or you put your hand out and they land on your hand. Yeah. You know, um, that's beautiful. That's a beautiful feeling, you know. Um, I was saying before that... And do you develop a relationship with them? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've, I've paired up with hens before. I had a hen with a broken wing. Uh, I, I had her as a stock pigeon. A friend of mine gave her just for breeding off. Yeah. And she had a broken wing. The, the wing broke and it healed back uh, in a way that she couldn't fly properly. She's a great breeder. Beautiful bird. And I, she was sitting on the loft one day. She used to try and get up to the roof and then kind of come back down and she'd sit beside me. So she's right beside me all the time. And I seen her nodding her head at me one day and that's how they, they they're like the bull, the cockwell buller and she'll nod her head and give him the okay right. and then he'll Jump on top. She was flirting with you. She was flirting with me. No way. So I start bullying at her, and she she jumped on my shoulder and we paired up. Now until she, another cock came along and took her off me, like because he was a real pigeon. Yeah. But she um, she yeah she paired up to me and it was a beautiful feeling like you know I couldn't believe it like first I was like she she like me, <laughs> but uh, yeah it was amazing. Yeah. It was amazing. Hmm. John O'Brien, and he features in the documentary Million Dollar Pigeons. Hard to follow that one, but we will try. On Arena, a special to celebrate the essay form and the Dublin Review. Contributor Kevin Barry read from his essay The Skin of Anxiety and it was written in about 2013 as a riff on the advent of the smartphone and at the time it got quite the reaction. I remember when this essay came out because it, it, it doesn't say like that the internet is awful or anything but it just says, you know, it's not all good. I remember people getting quite short with me, <laughs> saying like, "Why are you such?" And like I was, you know, I was. It was picked up a bit, and I was extracted in in the Guardian and in the Irish Times, and I was on radio shows about it, news shows, and they were saying, "We well, so we have a fella here now who's saying that um, maybe the internet isn't such a good thing." After all, Kevin Barry, explain yourself. You know what I was going. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying we're addicted. Oh, it's not easy being a visionary. Here's a bit of the essay. Although I am online all of my waking hours, I am considered among friends and acquaintances to be an amusingly 1.0 kind of fellow with throwback tendencies and Luddite markings. I am not on Facebook. I am not on 
Twitter. I do not have a website or a blog. I steer clear of iTunes, having wound up there once a bit pissed and buying about 50 quid's worth of Human League songs. <laughs> I do not maintain a Tumblr or curate a Flickr, and I am unsure what words to apply to such things because I do not know exactly what they are or what they do. I check email, I read the papers, I busy about looking at stuff. <laughs> I occasionally weep gladly in the small hours, having fallen into a YouTube hole of the early 80s synthesizer acts I grew up with, or the deep house tunes we used to slither around Sir Henry's nightclub to in the early 90s. I've had an iPhone for a year and have downloaded no apps. A little flush of triumph comes to my cheek if I manage to email someone a photo or paste a link into the body of a mail. This, after 18 years of internet activity, is the level of it. I have never looked at porn on the internet not having the need, as my mind already projects terrifying sequences of phantasmagorical sex images at all conscious hours of day and night. I've never played games online or arranged dates or yet sought to locate dogging venues in the vicinity of the <laughs> South County Sligo Swamplands. I have lately bought turf online, but I do little of the stuff you're supposed to do. Even so, I become extremely twitchy if force of circumstance keeps me away from the internet. My thoughts will stream then through the classic addict ruts. When can I next get a connection? Where can I find it? And how long will it take to get me there? Kevin Barry on Arena. But without the internet and the apps, where would you go for love? indeed lost. Worn to the knuckle you'd be swiping or is that just an activity confined to the Sodom and Gomorrah of the big smoke? Well, not so says Leodon Hines whose new book is called Courting Tractor Dates, Macro Babies and Swiping Right in rural Ireland. But a small village being a small village, the pool isn't exactly massive. Oh, there's the guy I went to the Debs with. That's my second cousin. Are you going to bump into people who you went to school with? Yeah. As it turns out, yes, you are, as Timmy from Kerry told us. Um, are you going to be forced to travel longer distances? Because, again, you're in a smaller community, there's less people. That was, again, a yes. So that was kind of the starting point was to, you know, there's been a lot of changes in dating. The apps have completely changed it. It's the main way now that people meet each other. But how was that working mm. in rural communities? So how is it working? Well, if you're farming, a shared love of the land is a help. Assuming you can work out who gets to stay on their farm. I spoke to Sophie, who's a 23-year-old farmer, and, I, and her mum, Steph, and, and, you know, so I was saying, well, what if you met a farmer? And Sophie's taking over her farm now. What happens if you meet a farmer? And she had said, I, I really would want to meet a farmer. I want someone who knows my life and what it's about. Yeah. Who's going to move? And, you know, her mother said, well, I think Sophie's well able to, you know, I could see the mother, Steph, no, she's not moving. You know, why yeah. would Sophie? But, but so there's, there's kind of just the, the hassle of having to move or there's the huge like we are emotional and, infrastructure yeah, around and that practicalities too. Yeah. and all and the that land. don't forget the land that's it exactly, and the land. exactly. Nearly, so I think sometimes they prefer, they're married to the land you know and 
and understandably like you know that was the other thing that I, I just thought was really gorgeous was talking to people and this sense of and this was businesses as well as like Paul who I spoke to it might be a business or it might be a farm but the family carrying this kind of enterprise throughout yes. the generations and like Sophie herself said that you know the whole family sits down and talks about the farm and, and, and so you understand that this isn't just like oh well I have this nine to five job and sure I'll get another job somewhere else you know if I move yes. this is a way of life this is something that they're thinking of generations ahead and, 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 you know, maintaining this for them. So I can really understand that. Assuming, of course, you can actually match with somebody because how both men and women approach the online world can be very different. Leodon talked to this Connemara woman who had a view of both sides. Betsy's bisexual. And she, like she was saying at the start, you know, I really just wanted to like have a bit of fun. She was coming out of a divorce. She went through that phase of like making everything okay for my kid and she was ready to date again. She, the amount of men who messed it up for themselves by just <laughs> not being able to have a proper conversation. Really? What were they doing? Oh, like it, it, the problem there, they go, hi, guess. Yeah. hi. Oh, hi. Ooh. And like, yeah. yeah, or exactly, crudeness. And yeah. she said like, really, I wasn't looking for much. I was just looking for a bit of civilised wow. conversation. I was ready to get back out there. Whereas, you know, women, she said, are almost gentle to the point of not wanting to hurt each other's feelings. Are you interested? I'm not sure. It's almost like the so we're opposite. looking for middle ground here. Yes, yeah. Uh, polite, yeah. conversational. Just a bit of conversation. Yeah, yeah. Rather than um, <laughs> yeah. a photograph that's unsolicited. Yes, nobody and a grunt right. of, yeah, exactly. yeah, hello, hello. Hi. You know, you've got to try a little harder than that, yeah. lads. Like, in fairness. Yeah, the communication. Or maybe go old school. Culture style. At the age of 16, I met my now husband of 35 years at a macro disco. 25 years later, my daughter met her husband at a macro event. It's a brilliant macro babies. That's what a macro baby is. Yeah, exactly. Aww. But if you do find love, keeping it alive might involve separate bedrooms. Psychotherapist Helen Vaughan made the case to Sarah and Cormac. You know, it's never really occurred to me that this is sort of a choice. And why not? Like, yeah. it's, it's got to be a choice because surely your relationship can be better if you are getting good sleep. You know, if one person is causing an issue that means the other can't sleep, there'd be resentment there, there'll be conflict there. You know, it just leads to problems. So why not sleep apart? Get good sleep, schedule your intimacy, your cuddle time, your crosswords, and then off you go and have a good night's sleep apart. Like, so I'm so is this it. something you would actually recommend then or... Do you, do you see potential? Oh, you have, really. But are there potential problems with it as you see it? Well, like I remember suggesting it to a couple who I think snoring was the issue. Mm. And there was total resistance from one partner and the other partner was willing to try it. And I'm kind of interested in what meaning we attach to sleeping apart as if it means that our relationship is loveless or sexless or that, that it's in trouble. When I think to me, it's kind of a practical thing. And if you need to spend a few nights apart and some nights together, you know, why not? If it helps you both personally and it probably helps the relationship ultimately. Cormac cuddles O'Hara. Not so sure. But but hang on a second here. What if they spend the night apart, a night or two, and they actually prefer it? Well, what's wrong with that though? But like, is that the not problem? the first is that not the first chink in in the armour kind of and they say, Okay, hang on a second here. Should we be spending more time apart, mm. even when we're awake? Den, den, but den. <laughs> why does sleeping in the same bed mean your relationship is good and sleeping not in the same bed mean your relationship is bad? Surely it's about the time, what you do while you're awake and the bond and connection and how you spend time together. That's you told, sir. And then this delicate euphemism from Sarah. Isn't there a, a perceived, at least, intimacy to sleeping in the same bed? And I think a, a real intimacy as well. It's not something you do with anybody else, sleep in the same bed. You know, you're close at your most vulnerable 
is there not a sort of a, a, a special feeling, I don't know, of intimacy that comes from that. <laughs> I don't know about that. But if your special feeling is working for you, go for it. On an sorry, ongoing basis. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> sorry, no, serious conversation. So that's what we're calling it. Well, that is it from this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week. My God.